Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Pop Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Today, my guest is journalist Mark Prado. Mark has written Living Color, Beyond the Cult of Personality, which was published by Amazon Create Space in 2014. Mark is a longtime fan and I think has done an excellent job of highlighting this band's significance in pop music history. Uh, I think Living Color had its moment in the sun, 1988 to about 1992, and then sort of faded from public view. But as Mark makes clear in the book, um, there are a lot of reasons for that popular decline and a lot to say about what made Living Color distinctive during this time period. So here's the interview with Mark. Hey, Mark. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm talking to Mark Prado, who's the author of Living Color Beyond the Cult of Personality, which has come out um, in just the last few weeks, I believe, uh, via Amazon. And uh, it's interesting. I can uh, just take very briefly and tell you that I had the uh, experience as a, a college student sitting in a dormitory at University of Maryland in 1989. And uh, Someone said this band living color is playing out in the quad and they meant like literally like I would have to walk down four flights of stairs and walked outside to see this band and I had, I'd never heard of them. And I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't think that was worth doing. Um, I will then say six months later I, or so. I couldn't get enough of the Vivid album, and we cranked it all the time in the dorm. I mean, as loud as we could play it till we got in trouble with the uh, the RA. So it's uh, great to talk to you about this band that I think hasn't quite gotten their due. All right. Yeah, no, sounds good. Definitely. That uh, definitely kind of got my start somewhat in the in the same way. Um, listening to the band uh, back in the day as they started breaking out about 1988 or so. So, so tell us about the, the genesis of the book. Um, how did this come to pass that you decided you wanted to write a book on Living Color? Yeah, I've been, I've been a big fan for, for most of their career. Like I mentioned, I, I picked up the vivid CD as, as millions of others did. I guess it was cassette tape back then uh, in '88, and and you know really got into the band, and they happened to be coming around playing in my hometown of San Francisco. So I, I saw them and had been a fan ever since, um, and collected a lot of material on them. You know, uh, interviews on, on tape, uh, interviews they gave to newspapers, uh, field recordings people made along the way of the band. Uh, uh, and all their their you know, outtakes, anything I could find, and it kind of dawned on me, you know, about five years ago, like there really should be something to document these guys. They had a, had a, a pretty interesting career. The, they're you know all black band, and what a lot of people feel is sort of a white white field of, of music, and they broke a lot of ground. Yet there hadn't really been something tying it all together telling their story you know it's an odd bio here and there um but nothing uh, nothing substantial and i happen to be a, a journalist by trade and, and had all this material and i thought well you know what the heck i'm gonna try to put something together and then that's sort of how it got started mm-hmm. i was noticing the introduction of the book that you you um, approached the members of the band and they knew you were writing the book and you were able to speak to them a little bit about your project 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I uh, flew down to Southern California in 2009. They were on their tour uh, for Chair on the Doorway. Um, so, yeah, I sort of approached them then about this idea. And then there's some interest, a little reticent. I was able to kind of uh, get Vernon Reed in the corner and kind of <laughs> talk to him a little bit. Um, so, so yeah, they they were somewhat receptive. It was sort of a thing, too, where I didn't want to get too close to him. It's sort of written from a fan's perspective, but I wanted to maintain the objectivity as well. Um, so I talked to them a bit then and then caught him again more formally before a show up here in San Francisco in, in 2010. Um, and um, it was, it's interesting. A lot of the material is really not my work. It's the work of others. I, I To a large extent, I'm, I'm more of an editor on this book, taking sort of different interviews that other people have done through the years, um, which which was sort of good. It, it, it kind of put me, you know, there's an interview from 1989, and they're talking about whatever might be going on, which I think is, is a little more effective than me talking to, that, to them today and then looking back and, and tell me recollections about what occurred then. You sort of avoid the revisionist history and sort of getting the sort of what really occurred back then. But and talking to them today, uh, or in 2010, I guess it was, when I really sat down with, with them before the show, I, I could kind of tie up some loose ends, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, so I think they were aware I was putting it together, and uh, so I'm not sure how they felt about it one way or another, but they did sit down with me. So yeah, Well, you uh, may hear one way or the other, you know, how artists are. They may they may uh, chime in at some point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the uh, other thing that really was um, hitting me when I was reading your book is that I think a lot of books that cover rock music tend to focus a lot on the albums. In other words, it's sort of, if you're going to write a book about Led Zeppelin, you sort of march through the different LPs as the chapters. And um, you definitely, obviously, uh, focus on the LPs, but I also noticed that you drew a lot on your own live archive, and there's a lot of material that was said from the stage or happened at certain shows that was documented on video or on audio and that you drew upon, and I think a way a lot of other um, authors might not have. How did that all come to pass? Yeah, it's just again going back to to being a big a big fan of a band, and I like a lot of music. I definitely like like rock music. That's sort of where my heart and, and soul is. But I'll listen to anything and, and anybody, you know, with, with a good beat, house, techno, rap, whatever it might be. Um, but there's certain bands you just end up having an affinity for, and you just want to get everything you you can on them. And that, that's what I did. You know, I got all the regular album, regular albums, and it's like, well, maybe they can find an import here. Oh, here's a B side. But here's a live version of X. And then it turns out, as I kind of went along, there's this, there are other like-minded music fans out there in the world. And then they might bring a little recorder to a show, you know, and they're not out to make a profit and sell it. They say, hey, I have a show from from uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, hey, you have a recording from San Diego. Why don't we make a swap? So I, I did that for, for several years and just sort of amassed this live archive of, of the band which then in writing the book, I was able to sort of draw upon um, and, and listen to these shows more closely maybe than I had before. And uh, maybe a certain song was played in a different way, or maybe the band was addressing the audience about a certain topic. So I was able to use that and sort of weave it in to, to the narrative of, of their story. Um, and I, and I, I think it, it proved to be helpful in, in painting a picture of the band rather than going to the regular sources or the regular interviews, you know, which they did as well. But this sort of sort of paints the, the picture chronologically. And, and I felt that 
it was important. I mean, I think to enjoy this book, you really have to be a fan of Living Color. If you're just the average music fan, you know, it's not going to be that interesting because it's a lot of uh, meat and potatoes, sort of a, the grind through the years of, of a band and, and the in and out and tour dates and set lists and so forth. But that was sort of my goal to really have a document of the band, not these sensational stories about this, that, or the other, but just to kind of give a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account, which again, for the average fan, music fan might not be of interest, but historically I thought it was important to get the band story uh, down in that way. Yeah, I, you know, as a historian myself, I was really um, taken back to that moment in time. I gave a little anecdote about discovering Living Color myself and becoming a big fan of that record when it first came out, the Vivid record. Um, but I had probably forgotten um, the, the little details I did know about how the band got signed, and I know Mick Jagger was involved. Can you can you recount that? Because I think that's kind of an interesting story about how they uh, made it to a major label. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Vernon Reed, obviously, is the force behind Living Color, was his idea. He got it started in, in 1983 and sort of struggled for a few years, had different people coming in and out of the band, Um eventually, you know, met the, the nucleus that would become the, the famous uh, Living Color Muskillings on bass, Will Calhoun on drums, uh, Corey Glover on vocals, and of course, Vernon Reed playing guitar. Um, so he got he got that finally together in about 86 or so, and, and they played a lot of the clubs in, in New York. Um, Vernon Reed then went and uh sort of tried out for a record that Mick Jagger was putting together at the time, a solo record, and they kind of got to know each other a little bit. And and people were whispering in Jagger's ear, hey, you know, this guy Vernon Reed has a really, really great band. You should go check him out. Um, so as, as, uh, as that all was occurring, and in fact, uh, Mick Jagger and Jeff Beck also went down to, to check out uh, the band at CBGB, the, the famous New York club Um that launched a lot of different bands. But uh, Beck and Jagger saw the band there, and, and Jagger got really excited about them and, and uh, ended up producing a couple of songs songs uh, with them, which turned out great. But interestingly, it, people, that's, again, sort of the retelling of this story that, oh, it's, it was Jagger that really made them and, and got them uh, the big break, which is not exactly true. He definitely got him, got him on the map. I mean, it was uh, of, of note in, in the music press, during that time that uh, Jagger was working with this band. But even with the demos, they, they ended up shopping those around and still a lot of labels were like, eh, you know, I don't, we still don't know what to make of it, even with Jagger's sort of uh, imprint on the band. Mm-hmm. But then finally, I think it was Michael Kaplan over at Epic kind of heard it and say, yeah, but these guys really have something, and it, it kind of went from there. That's a great uh, reminder, too. That reminds me, of course, of the... Uh the Gene Simmons Van Halen story um, of, you know, you have the, the big rock star behind your demo and you shop it around. And yet even so it's not a, a slam dunk. These a uh, and R guys at the labels don't necessarily think because Mick Jagger thinks this band is good that um, they can sell it or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's always about money in the end and it's a capitalist society. So uh, the intentions might be there. You might get somebody. Yeah. I mean, that's a, prime example gene simmons uh saying hey there's this band uh, van halen and that's really good and obviously they were really good but you know he had to have the right mix and people buy into it and you know no pun intended but yeah buy into it be able to sell it market it etc and i think a lot of people saw you know living colors black rock band and you know at this time in the late 80s i mean, like 
there was really no black rock band, so it, somebody had to take kind of a chance and then wonder hmm, how could we market this, how we could we make money on it. A lot of people just you know were not interested, even though the band kind of knew the music was, was was pretty interesting and pretty good, and maybe even some of these people they talked to the record labels thought the same, but again, again, came down to marketing. How can we make money off of this? And, uh, you know, took a while for that to happen. That, and that naturally feeds into my next question, which was going to be about something I had, um, again, was reminded of that I had largely forgotten about was something, um, that was branded, I assume by spin magazine and by Rolling Stone called the black rock coalition. And, um, Living Color got lumped in with some other bands that were around. There weren't many of them, but can you talk a little bit about that, effort by uh, media slash record label to sort of uh, make this into a movement or brand living color into a, with these other bands. Yeah. I don't know if it was, it was a record label so much. The black rock coalition was something that, um, that Vernon Reed came up with, with a couple of friends in New York, just with the idea of, of, of promoting black rock bands. Again, at the time it was a, it was a struggle. So the thought was to, um, create uh, this coalition and, and do what could be done to promote some of these bands. And, you know, it had, it had varying success off and on uh, over the years. Um, but, um, you know, even, even the band themselves admit that they all kind of got involved in it to all the band members, but with Reed kind of leading the charge with the black rock coalition, which is still around today, actually. And it still serves a great function. But in terms of launching these highly successful bands, it, it, it's it's you know it never really quite quite happened with, with again some of the band members acknowledging there mm-hmm. should have been more more bands signed and they probably sh- should have. But again, it was a marketing. How does this fit? And that's what makes Living Color stories somewhat remarkable. Somehow they did break through. Somehow they were able to go past the the stereotypes of what these four guys should have been doing and. Um, you know, creating this this music that was eventually accepted on a large scale, but they are really, really the the only ones um, to accomplish that. And, and uh, there are obviously a lot of rock, black rock bands, but in terms of this large scale success that they had, it was pretty unique. Mm-hmm. The um, so the record comes out, Vivid comes out in 1988 on um, Epic, if, if I remember correctly, and then uh, yes, yeah. they uh, the, eventually the album breaks in part because of uh, Cult of Personality. Um, and then they go on the road with probably the biggest tour of 1989, arguably, um, which was the Rolling Stone Steel Wheels tour. Um, how did that all come to pass? Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was interesting. And just to to go back a little bit, it, it was it was you mentioned it was part of it was because of Cult of Personality, the video that that um, you know got them going. It was that was really almost you know I mean aside from their obvious talent, but. But the, that breaking of that video really was a thing that just it caught fire on MTV and, and really brought them to the fore. So that was like 90% of the reason why suddenly, you know, they broke big. And even Corey Glover, the singer, you know, a couple of the shows said, hey, you know, look what, what a difference a video can make uh, playing in these same cities that they played six months before is unknown. And now all these people are suddenly turning out once that video came out. So they were riding this this huge wave of popularity. They They've played like 270 shows since Vivid was launched and just running all over the world playing. And, and yeah, the um, Rolling Stones uh, happened to be doing a Steel Wheels tour, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct. It was the first tour they'd done in about seven years. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and Jagger at that point said, "Hey, ask the band if they wanted to to come along," and sort of a no-brainer to to be able to open for the Stones. Who so the band Living Color you know greatly admired the Stones and and their music. Um, so yeah, so it worked out, and uh, and there they were suddenly playing. You know, instead of a thousand people in the club, they were playing you know the fifty-five thousand people at these massive stadiums. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a. Uh another band that joins the tour at some point, you'll have to remind me the whole chronology of that and tell our listeners about how that all turned out. But, um, so guns and roses is added to the bill. Yeah. Yeah. Those are for the, for the LA shows. Um, I think, I think four of them down in Los Angeles in October of 89. Um, at the time they had, a had a song out called one in a million, that made uh, sort of derogatory references to black people and and gay people using terms that that were fairly offensive within the song, you know. Um, and then Living Color was on a radio show uh, down in L.A. around that time before the gigs, and DJ asked, "Hey, what do you what do you what do you think about this?" and and they say, well, you know, it's, it's pretty horrible. It's a lot of racist, a lot of homophobic words coming out of the song. We have a problem with it. Well, somehow Axl Rose, you know, either heard it or somebody told him about it. And he confronted uh, the band at, after, uh, before, I think it was right before, right after Living Color came off the stage at one of these shows. And I think it was Mus Gillings in particular that, that Axl started talking to. And Axl was sort of defending himself. Um, and uh, and after that, Axel goes on stage and kind of has this long rant that you can read read verbatim in the book about how he's he's doesn't think this about black people and he doesn't mind gay people, but it, you know it's all tinged with with these words that are are pretty inflammatory. Um, and it's interesting the crowd reaction. You know, there, there's some booze, but there are a lot of cheers too. Um, and the next night, Vernon Reed went on stage and sort of addressed that, you know, saying, hey, if you don't have a problem with, with black people, don't call them X. If you don't have a problem with, with gay people, don't call them Y. Um, and, hey, we shall all live together, which is interesting. And apparently uh, Keith Richards, after that show, came to the band and said, hey, you know, it's good that you, you stood up for what you believed in. So, so yeah, it was an interesting, uh, an interesting whole time uh, around those shows down there. And then the uh, the thing is that uh, of course Slash is multiracial um, in the yeah. band, and I, my memory yeah. is that he was never very comfortable with uh, the lyrics to One in a Million. Going back to when the album was recorded, did he have anything to say or add about all this? You know, not really. No, not that I ever heard of. But it, but I think at the, at the time, yeah, like you said, he expressed his sort of concern. You know, um, but you know, again, he, he played on the record too. So so. Um, yeah, that, that was sort of an interesting, interesting situation as well um, with, with, within the band, within Guns N' Roses. Who, you know, in actuality too, that, that you know, it's not like Living Color had it in for for Axl Rose or Guns N' Roses. Vern Reed, you know, said, hey, you know, they were at these Stone shows. They were getting a reaction as big as the Stones, and he said, rightly so. They were you know, a local band, uh, L.A. That's where they broke, and you know, he, he respected you know, the music, but just those words in particular were pretty, pretty hurtful. And, you know, youth, youth is an interesting thing. And, you know, over the years, I think, I think Axel's written songs about MLK. So, you know, there's 
probably some realization like on his part, like, hey, maybe that wasn't too cool. But, right. you know, it's a time when you're in your young 20s and a lot of things are going on you right. know, and maybe maybe he's a little uneducated or whatever it might be. Things are said. I always like to give these little intermissions here. Axel, don't sue us. We don't mean it. That's right. We love we love Axel. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the point you're bringing up about the band on the 1989 tour there with Steel Wheels is it kind of gets to one of the other things I thought was really important about your book um, is about how political Living Color was. And, and you know, uh, people can be political like they can do a promo for Greenpeace and that's sort of, yeah, you're being so political. But I, I mean more that they were very outspoken about racial issues um, later on about um, the United States' role after the um, 9-11 attacks with the uh, Iraq war. And, and they, they afford to have this um, willingness to not just sort of say, well, it doesn't make sense from a branding perspective or from a marketing perspective for us to be sort of more, quote unquote, neutral. We're going to be outspoken and take actually fairly controversial positions, I would say, um, in some circles in, in the United States. Uh, what's your thoughts about the... Um, some of these things that they they've done over the years, I, I have a few examples here, but um, I'd let you speak first. Tell me what your what your thoughts about their political tone they've taken. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think that's that's them for for good, bad, or otherwise. You know, it's helped them, but I think it's hurt them a lot, lot too, because they just say you know what what they feel. They sort of tell the stories of what what's around. Um, that's what makes them you know, so, so great for a lot of people that they don't really care like, Oh, well, let's not address this because mm -hmm. it might hurt record sales or let's not say that because, you know, they're just going to do what they're going to do, which again, in a lot of ways it has backfired on them. If you think about rock and roll, you know, people <laughs> like to go to shows and, and drink and have a good time. You know, do they really want to sit and think about hmm, what's this band saying to me? You know, what, what, Oh, I have to listen now to this. And it's political stuff, and you know, I came to this rock show as an escape. I don't want to hear about the ills of the world. Um, and the band itself acknowledged that you know, at times they could be be seen in, in too sort of dour a light, too political. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's who they are, and they haven't never backed away from that, which makes it you know, very, very admirable. Again, that said, a, a certain segment of, of music fans, I'm sure, just turned off they don't see the connection between music and 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 political messages especially in rock and roll which you know tends to be good time music if you want to hear about social uh, issues you listen to old dylan or john baez or you know whatever it might be you don't necessarily connect this sort of rock and roll um uh thing with political messages you know u2 has done it successfully off and on as well a little bit but um but you know, generally speaking, it's sort of a, it's a hard sell, I think, in the rock business to do what they do. But but again, it, it speaks to to their integrity and be damned with what people think. They want to want to say something rather than sing about sex and drinking and mm -hmm. <laughs> partying. You know, which they, it's it's not all you know, it's not all serious. They have their fun songs too as well. But, uh, but yeah, but a big part of they are a very, very political band. I was really struck when I was uh, reading through your book about the song Elvis is Dead. And, um, you know, that's obviously on its face. It's just sort of the uh, captures that, to me, that moment in the 1980s and late 70s where you'd have these quote unquote Elvis sightings, which was kind of humorous at the time. You know, you'd see, you know, was, oh, I was in, you know, I was in a shopping mall in Des Moines, Iowa, and I bumped into Elvis. And people yeah. would say this like this is true. And, you know, maybe some people really did believe it. But, um, you know, they, they went on to discuss the song and then they sort of used the, um, 
they used the opportunities when people would ask them about the song to, to uh, disparage Elvis, which again, um, I don't think their point was um, off target. I'll let you talk about it. But again, it's one of these things where Elvis is sort of this sacred cow in the minds of a lot of people. And I just wonder um, again, how that affected their, their popularity. Do you want to talk a little bit about Elvis is dead and what they had to say about it? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, that that was a very talking about walking a fine line or razor line. Uh, it's that you know that song is is a difficult one in in the sense that you know, yeah, on the one hand, hey, they're trying to say, hey, let's have respect for Elvis. He he's gone, and and all these sightings are are ridiculous. But then woven into that is this whole thought, which is which is true that. You know, Elvis was sort of based on black rock and roll, and, mm-hmm. and his manager, I guess Tom Parker, said, "Hey, if I could find a white guy to sing like a black guy, you know, I'd have access to all these fans." Because we we're talking 1950s America, it wasn't necessarily uh, cool for everyone to go listen to a black artist. But if you can get a white artist to sing like a black man, you know, again, you make millions, and it, and it happened. But um, but yeah, that, that's an interesting. Again, it's sort of walking a very fine line. Um, that kind of cuts both ways. And, and to be honest, I don't know if it can be had both ways. You know, are we going to respect Elvis? Yet he kind of ripped a lot of people off. Um, it's, it's, it was controversial in a lot of a lot of ways. Yet it sort of spoke to the band. Again, their message, hey, we want to get the message out there that, yes, Elvis was a good performer, but, mm-hmm. you know, was he better than, than Little Richard, who appears on the song doing a rap about Elvis? So... Did they walk that that fine line successfully? You know, I don't know. It, 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 the song's been criticized, and maybe maybe rightly so. But again, it goes back to to the band and their integrity. You know, they said it, they stand by it. They said, "Hey, it's not meant to be a slag on Elvis. Show some respect." And even though they say it wasn't meant to be a slag, they are saying, "Hey, you know, Elvis wasn't the end all and be all of rock and roll." So. Uh, so yeah, and that probably turned a lot of people off. Yeah, again, that political message or or whatever it might be, um, probably turned <laughs> did did send people away from from living color. Yeah, the uh, and what you just uh, mentioned, you know, I think it, it gets to something else that really came through to me is that. Uh, there is a uh, there was a stereotype or is a stereotype in America about quote unquote the angry black man and it's sort of this this idea that oh you know this this person because of their skin color they've um, you know they they take on a certain tenor or a certain way of approaching issues that makes them somewhat slightly irrational and I don't know if I'm exactly capturing that but there's certainly I know Spike Lee has talked about that and stuff that you know that America doesn't like black men that are angry do you think that they might have fallen a bit into that. Um, that stereotype and, uh, you know, a lot of white Americans go, you know, these guys are all, you know, they're, they're rich now. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Why don't they just shut up and stop being angry? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think, I think there's a certain, certain element of that where, where, you know, you hate to draw, you know, racial lines, et cetera, but race is still, you know, still a big issue now it was, was, was when living color broke. I mean, even now look at the whole, Donald Sterling situation with the Los Angeles Clippers and his comments, and it sort of created this firestorm. So race, uh, I guess, unfortunately, is, is never right below you know the, the surface in America, and given the history of African Americans in this country, uh, there's a, just a lot of a lot of history there. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of people did view, you know, I'm sure a lot of people thought, hey, just do your rock and roll and, and be happy you succeed and, and right. you, you're, you're success and 
I mean, you know, you're, you're doing fine and making money. Like, well, now why are you slagging on Elvis or why are you talking about, you know, race relations and, and all this? Um, but again, that the message living color had, I think amongst themselves was just, you know, we're not going to compromise. This is it. Hey, you know, we might turn people off, but, but just because, uh, we, we've sold a million records that was vivid. We're not going to back off and okay, let's play it safe. Now let's maybe we should write about, you know, going to the beach and, and having a nice day and, and all this, uh, you know, if anything, it was, it was the exact opposite. They got more intense with their, their musical messages. Um, so yeah, so I think it's a, a, a difficult road to hope, you know, being a black rock band playing quote unquote white music, which really initially was black music. And, but, um, but again, they, they sort of stood by their guns and I'm sure it cost them some, some fans along the way. If I heard you correctly, you were saying that they got more political as they went on, um, in terms of their albums. You want to talk about Time's Up maybe and some of their other LPs? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the first album, there's some you know political things on there. Open literature, landlord, which sort of addressed gentrification, um, cult of personality, obviously, which is sort of a look at look at fame. But there's sort of some some light songs on there on there too. Broken heart, not light, but to dealing with love and and glamour boys, which is sort of a fun poppy song. But yeah, once they you know once they got in, on, into Times Up, their second album, I think, released in. 1990, you know, you got a environmental thrash metal song with all sort of different things coming together, but just t- times up the song's first track and New Jack theme about the uh, inner city uh, drugs and, and et cetera, uh, undercover of darkness, kind of a AIDS, uh, AIDS uh, story of the day and safe sex and, uh, you know, fight the fight, kind of a social justice song, Pride, which really spoke to the black experience uh, in America, written by Will Calhoun, a very interesting song, you know, just that it just addresses, you know, if you listen to the lyrics, uh, essentially saying, hey, you love us when we're on stage, but what about off stage? Am I, am I a different person than you love us when we play? But if you meet me off stage at a restaurant or see me on the street, you know, what's your, what's your, thought of me then, which, which the sort of, you know, an ultimate truth that makes people stop and say, Hey, you know, yeah, how do I feel about this? You know? So, so yeah, so definitely, you know, politics continued on for that, that second album for sure. And, and the band eventually, um, breaks up in the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. They put out, put out another album, um, Spain, uh, again, a lot of, a lot of interesting sort of songs there. But, uh, but yeah, nineteen they toured nineteen ninety three and and I think relationships were within the band were were just not that good at that time, maybe for a couple of reasons. It, it sort of one of the interesting things I've sort of discovered in, in writing this is they all obviously respect each other within the band, but it's not always buddy buddy. You might think okay, it's it's, uh, it's all for one and one for all. Here we are, the four guys that are black trying to break into rock and we're you know, tight as brothers, but I think more often not than not, sometimes they fight like brothers and it's not this uniformity that, that one might think, you know, looking in from the outside. I think the band described it as kind of, it is like a family relationship where you kind of get all each other's nerves, et cetera. So I think all those tensions sort of started to build up. Most Skillings left the band at, by that point. The band never really healed from, from that departure, which was, was pretty hurtful, I think, to everybody within the band. I think Vernery was sort of feeling constricted by 
by living color. Was, was, he was sort of suddenly had had to format his music to sort of fit this this sort of uh, this this uh, genre of music. And I, I think at the end he just kind of had enough of it and sort of just sort of unilaterally kind of broke things up. The uh, the band breaks up, and then um, what what happens after? Um, the reunion begins. In other words, um, how does the reunion come to pass? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. So they broke up, I think, at the beginning of, of 95 and called it quits. And then they all kind of went their separate ways, um, doing individual projects. Uh, Corey Glover, the singer, and, and Vernon re- released some interesting solo music. And uh, Doug Wimish, the bass player at that time, who had replaced Mo Skillings and, and Will Calhoun got together and uh, some band called Head Fake and some other interesting material. But so they sort of just pursued their own musical project. But I think they have always talked off and on about getting back together. Um, and eventually, you know, Vernon Reed was sort of finally open to the idea. So they rehearsed a little bit. It felt good. And then they did a reunion in December of 2000, of, of all places, at CBGB again, kind of this sort of important uh, venue throughout their whole career. Um, so, yes, yeah, so they got back together. It felt felt pretty pretty right again musically and and they they went on uh did a, a tour of the west coast and it kind of it kind of went went from there um sort of interestingly at that point they didn't have the epic sort of music machine behind them anymore mm-hmm. they kind of just sort of went under under the radar um you know it might have been smart, smart at that time to kind of you know hire somebody to hey get the word out hey living colors back but they decided to kind of play it low key. Um, so, so things went, went fairly well, but I think some of the old problems started to pop up again. You know, they weren't communicating very well and, you know, having some, some problems with, with each other. Um, the things of the past maybe weren't completely swept aside. Um, and, um, uh, but, but again, those early reunion shows went pretty well. Then nine eleven happened, and they're a New York City band, and that really, really hit them hard, and and sort of provided the inspiration for their their first uh, post breakup uh, album, a Kaleidoscope, which which came out in two thousand three. The uh, Kaleidoscope album was put out on what label, Mark? Um, that was on Sanctuary, I believe. Um, so, and that. Uh, that uh, you know didn't do very well at all. It's really disappointing, I think, to the band. And I think again, the relationships at that time within the band weren't weren't very good. There's still a lot of bickering and fighting. And like I mentioned, the books sort of unfortunately was kind of just distanced themselves from that record. But it's it's a really fine album. A lot of people didn't quite get it. I think it's one of those albums that that you need to listen to to kind of get. Um, and there's some very interesting material. The first five songs or so deal all with 9-11, which again, maybe aside from Green Day, I think Green Day dealt with 9-11 a little bit, generally mm-hmm. speaking. But not a lot of people would, would, would tackle that in, in song. And here's these sort of five songs that really hit a lot of different issues surrounding that whole tragedy from a New York band, you know. So it was, it was a very interesting record, I thought. But again, uh, it sort of it's kind of got sort of got buried, and some of the most of the reviews were good, but the fans didn't really seem to take to it either. 
and and again, the band has really sort of distanced itself from it. But it's a really a fine fine work. So maybe maybe it'll come back around. People will appreciate it again down the road. So they're still a going concern today, right? Touring, working. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah, Living Colors. Uh, yeah, that's sort of the other interesting thing going back to that. Uh, that time when they got back together, they, they really decided to, to not really, you know, kind of decided to again fly under the radar for whatever reason. A lot of people don't even, you know, didn't even know they were back together until they might read about it somewhere online. Like, Oh, these guys were great. I didn't know they were they're, They were back together and they've been back together now since 2000. They've put out kaleidoscope in 2003. And then in 2009, they put out chair in the doorway. Um, another sort of fine album, um, that kind of really moves them musically along the path. If you listen to the more recent material uh, and then the earlier, all of it's good, but you can see how they continue to grow. And I, to me, the, the last couple albums they've done are, are equal those, those early efforts. Um, so yeah, so out there that they're touring, they just celebrated their 25th uh, anniversary, uh, the release of, of Vivid. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're out there and playing uh all over the world, which they do have an interesting, they have a following really, really everywhere. Like I mentioned in the book, they could set up shop and put their amps out and in almost any country and get a, a good crowd to come out. So sort of speaking to their, their, their fan base, which is, which is passionate. I'm a pretty uh, avid reader of uh, a lot of the rock blogs and rock news blogs. And it, it, yeah, what you're mentioning to me about them sort of flying under the radar really is, um, kind of I don't know, perplexing. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, I think today a lot of artists realize they have to really heavily promote themselves, that there is no big record company engine behind most of these bands anymore. Um, and yet Vernon Reed and, and company, they don't seem to be willing to do that. Um, or unless I'm missing, missing something here, they don't seem to be willing to play that game or want to play that game. Yeah, it's a good thing. You know, they have, it's it's weird. They have their they have their Facebook page out there, which a lot of a lot of people have. But yeah, in terms of promotion, you know, yeah, I guess they just sort of rely on the the name to to get people to come out. But it's not like they have um, uh, somebody yeah, promoting them twenty four seven or pushing them and, and getting their their name out there again. But they've done some high profile things. They did the world uh, wrestling. Uh, uh, saying, I guess, when the wrestler CM Punk uses cult of personality for um, his uh, his on the uh, into the ring music, I guess it is, and uh, so and they played at the Giant Stadium uh, last uh, April in front of sixty, seventy thousand people. So they'll, they'll still get out there. They had played Jimmy Fallon, but um, you know, rock, I guess, music in general has definitely changed. Uh, from the old days where it's a record company kind of pushing you out there. Now there's so many uh, venues to, to promote yourself. It, it's maybe um, uh, difficult to know which way to go to, to get your, get your name out there. Right. Um, the other important issue about your book, which we haven't talked about, which is the, is the um, constant presence of Jimi Hendrix. I take it you're a pretty big Jimi Hendrix fan. And it seems like living color was a heavily influenced by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think all the all the band members definitely have an appreciation for Hendrix, and yes, I, I do too. I mean, to me, he's one of the more most interesting maybe rock personalities of all time, given his history and a lot of those those bands from the '60s, which are fantastic bands as well. But they maybe came out of colleges or music schools, and, and Hendrix was a sort of interesting character, just a poor kid from Seattle. Um, 
and just to make it so big is was, was always fascinating to me. Um, but you know, the interesting thing about about Hendrix, um, and I make this point in in the book as as well. Again, in the modern era, the, the sort of idea of this all black rock band finding success is you just it's hard to find. Um, and Hendrix you know, had a platinum album, platinum album with the, the band of Gypsies, so kind of an all black rock band with himself and Billy Cox on bass and Buddy Miles on drums. But that a lot of that success was was built on on Hendrix's original band, the experience with these two white English sidemen, Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. So he kind of I think that ensemble sort of paved the way to some extent for the band of Gypsies' success. Not that the band of Gypsies' music was not good; it was, it was quite excellent, obviously. But people, Hendrix was a known commodity and, and had had international fame. So it kind of, again, paved the way for this all-black band of gypsies, rock band to go platinum, where Living Color was really starting from ground zero. Um, and to me, that makes make that accomplishment even more amazing to be able to break through in this, this genre of music that's supposed to be you know, for white people um, and to get a, a platinum album and that success is, is pretty amazing. But yeah, but uh, yeah, the band themselves is uh, the fans of Hendrix. They've done the Hendrix, the Experience Hendrix tour and play a few Hendrix songs and recorded a few Hendrix songs over the years as well. I think Burning of the Midnight Lamp the Hendrix song was on the, the Biscuits EP early on. So, um, so yeah, they have a great admiration for him. That said, I mean, you know, Hendrix, as Vernon Reed has pointed out, was not the, the end of, of, you know, black influenced, uh, or having rock in black music. There's other bands too, the Isley brothers and, you know, uh, Fishbone had some influence, bad brains, but, um, but in terms of that, Success. It was you know, Hendrix and, and Living Color, and you can't. You know, there's a lot more artists than those two uh, entities. But it's just if you look at success, you know, it is really those two that that really kind of made it. You know, big uh, in this field that were all black. I, I know we talked in the uh, the pre-interview about the uh, long genesis of this book on Loving Color and how you mulled over it for quite a while and then uh, worked on it over a period of years. And uh, usually on the podcast, we ask the uh, final question of uh, what's the next uh, project for you as a writer? Um, and so I know that might be a uh, kind of a loaded question because I know you're, you're pretty exhausted after this one. But um, do you have another book in you, do you think, anytime soon? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think this is probably, probably it for me. And, um, you know, it's interesting that – this book is really, it's almost what I think Vernon Reed wrote a piece, I think in Relics Magazine, about how fans really get into a band and they defend them against detractors and these trolls and say, oh, this band's terrible. And, and I, I think the impetus for me to write this book was was to document the band, and, but maybe it's also for my own, own ego to say, hey, I, I've loved this band for a long time. I think they're really good. I think they go probably criminally uh just overlooked over the years and I want to get this book out here and, and show people, Hey, this is an amazing band. They do amazing things. And if you're one of the people out there that loves the band, you know, you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there, but I think uh, to some extent they were sort of marginalized over the years. So this book, in yeah, a large extent was like, um, to, uh, maybe prove myself, <laughs> myself right in a way and, and to get their story out there to have something in black and white. Historically, I think the band deserves it, but, um, yeah, I think this is a one-time 
book book for me. I think it's back to writing on newspaper articles after this. So that brings me to ask you, um, how can people get in touch with you? And, and also, how can people buy your book? Yeah, so I think in the in the book itself, but I'll, I'll put this out there, um, email address, uh, Mark Prado, P-R-A-D-O, Mark with a K. So Mark Prado 2323 at yahoo.com if you want to drop me a line, good, bad, or otherwise, feel free. And the book itself published, so it's on Amazon right now. Um, so it's easy to find there. I have heard it's pretty pricey to buy outside the United States in terms of shipping. So um, so if you want to get a, a copy of the book and you, you don't live uh, in the U.S., you can always drop me an, an email. I can get it to you one way or another. Um, this book is, a, again, not a, it's not a chance for me to make millions of dollars. I just really want to get their story out there. So if you want this book, we'll find definitely some way to get it in your hands in a, in a cheap way. So so feel free to drop me a line. And it's available via Kindle, excuse me, Kindle too. You know, I haven't put it out on that yet. It's interesting. I kind of went through that process to maybe do a Kindle, and I set it up. And, you know, I'm a little bit of an old-school kind of guy, and, and I thought it would be nice just to, at least for now, just keep it out on in, you know, in, in print and paperback. And there's something about a feel to the book, and uh, not my book, but any book that I thought was kind of nice. So for right now, I'm just keeping it keeping it there. I'll, I might put it out on Kindle later on. I mean, again, the bottom line is just to get the band story out there. But for now, it's uh, just in paperback, but only about 10 bucks, so it's not too much. Well, if there is popular demand, everyone should email Mark at his uh, email address of, uh, and uh, let him know that they'd like the book on Kindle. But um, hey, Mark, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the New Books and Pop Music Podcast. It was really interesting. And like I said, I think um, really, I think you're too modest. I think the book really does highlight um, a moment in time that right, really, I think there was a lot of uh, hope that there would be this new wave of black artists uh, who were rock players. It didn't quite come to pass, but um, I really enjoyed the book and I really want to thank you again for coming on. Great, Greg. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to a conversation with journalist Mark Prado about his book, Living Color, Beyond the Cult of Personality, which was published by Amazon Create Space in 2014. I'm Greg Renoff, your host. Thanks again for joining me, and please subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss another episode.